Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year, and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Okay, today we're going to talk about reinforcement strategies, and the reason this is a podcast episode is because I mention reinforcement strategies all the time. I talk about them all the time. And over in Patreon, I had a few different people say, hey, can you elaborate on that? What is that? Can we have some examples, etc. So a reinforcement strategy is simply the design of your reinforcement process. So it is being smart and intentional about how you reinforce is using a reinforcement strategy. So a strategy might be selecting a food robot to reinforce a specific behavior rather than just clicking and tossing food or rather than feeding from your hand. A strategy is simply using food rather than a toy or vice versa. So we're all using strategies. And just like anything else that we're doing, we will do it better if we are intentional about it. So the first thing I want you to pay attention to is the behaviors the dog has to do in order to obtain said reinforcement. So the topography of the reinforcement acquisition, and that's just a fancy way of saying the stuff the dog does to take the payment, will weave its way into the topography of your final agenda behavior. And so that means that if I reinforce my dog at the end of an agility run by pulling a tug out and having the dog come and put his feet on me and grab that tug, it is possible that in times of expected reinforcement or at the end of the run, the dog will come and pelt me with his front feet and maybe bite at me or expect a tug. So that's just one example. But also, if I have a behavior that relies on stillness for its final product and I'm reinforcing with tossed food forward, I am going to get more foot motion in my stillness behavior than I probably want. So things to pay attention to are, like what I just said, motion or lack thereof in the behavior. If this is a stillness-based behavior, like maybe a stand for exam for competitive obedience, I am going to be very careful about my reinforcement strategy here to make sure that forward motion is not part of it. And I may even strategize to 
to counter the forward motion and have it be a backward motion reinforcer rather than just a stillness reinforcer. So my options might be to reinforce the dog by allowing the dog to move forward to reinforcement out of the stand, to reinforce the dog by feeding him in position. So using what we often refer to as a room service marker, a word that means I'm bringing you the food, stay there. Or I could have a dish loaded with a cookie or even a food robot behind the dog and I could release him backwards. And it all depends on what I'm getting from the dog that I'm actually training. If I am getting forward motion, I'm probably going to pivot to a room service marker. If I continue to get forward motion, I probably need to pivot again to an anti-forward motion reinforcement strategy like that backward motion reinforcement strategy. I'm smart in the beginning to just select my reinforcer against that motion forward, knowing it is what the dog's going to want to do. So I'm smart to just start with that room service marker. And then if I start to have that forward motion issue, I can counter it with backward motion reinforcement. I might also use my reinforcer as a reset or as a way to return to the A in that ABC loop that I'm always thinking about when I train. So if I'm always thinking about a loop of antecedent to behavior to consequence and back to antecedent again, I can strategize my reinforcement to be sure that I bring that C right back up to the A. So that could look like tossing a treat beyond the mat, if the mat is maybe um, between the dog and I to start, and that's our A, it goes dog, mat, person. Then if I want to return the dog back to that A, after the dog gets on the mat, I will mark and I will throw the food backwards so that after the dog is done eating, he's back in that A position of dog, mat, person all over again. If I want both things, a reset and maybe stillness, there's nothing stopping me from giving two treats. I can give my room service marker, feed in position, and then throw food behind the dog to reset. That in and of itself is a reinforcement strategy. Let's say my dog doesn't meet criteria. Maybe I've got the dog, uh, maybe I've got it, it's dog wobble board trainer rather than just mat. And I want the dog to be all four on and paused on the wobble board. And that's my agenda. And the dog comes two feet on, two feet off. Then I'm just going to throw my reset cookie. And on the next round, if the dog gives me that four on behavior, I'm going to mark, I'm going to feed in position and then toss the reset cookie. Now I've got this strategy that even involves one or two treat paradigms that show the dog which behavior is more desirable than the other behavior. I mean, now we're talking rocket science in dog training. We also want to be thinking about sustainability. So once a behavior is acquired, then I want to start thinking about sustainability for life. When we're talking sport behaviors, that usually means utilizing some sort of remote reinforcement strategy, meaning that I can teach my dog, I'm leaving the reinforcers over here, 
we're going to go over there and do the behaviors and then we'll come back over here and have the reinforcers. That is also a strategy. It's a ring sustainability strategy more so than a behavior enhancement strategy. And further, if I'm trying to introduce my dog to the ring sustainable strategy of remote reinforcement, but my behaviors are getting a little bit sloppy, I could strategize to also feed my dog in the quote unquote ring that I have designed to keep my behavior sharp while I introduce my dog to the ring sustainable version of reinforcement. You know, bottom line is we should be thinking about this. This should be part of our planning phases for our training always. We should always think, okay, what's the behavior that I want? What are the first approximations I'm going to be looking for? And what is my reinforcement strategy? And after we end the session, we should always say to ourselves, and is that reinforcement strategy working for me or do I need to change it to enhance this behavior that I'm after? So for instance, I'm working on some kind of remedial contact training with Felix. I'm trying to repair his running A-frame because it's not as consistent as I would like. And with the help of my agility uh, cabinet, I have identified that one of his issues is that he'd like to stop in a target and look at me rather than keep his focus ahead. And so I need to reinforce him in the target to really drive home that that's the area that he's going to be paid but I also want him moving forward. And so I've needed to adjust my strategy. I had a few sessions of feeding in the target and now I'm adjusting my strategy to feeding outside of the target and then adjusting my strategy still to making sure that he is looking ahead before I ever give him the cue. That is about planning your training each time you go to train and saying, okay, last time I was getting a little bit of this behavior and I don't want that. So how am I going to combat it? And I can't, and can I do that with my reinforcement strategy? And the answer is almost always yes. So here's some specifics for sports. For sports, really common reinforcement strategies we might use would be food robots. I'm a huge fan of the manners minder or the pet tutor out on the agility field to reinforce remotely some behaviors that I want to be independent of my interference. So if I want the dog to finish the weave pulls, finish the contact without my interference, I'm going to have that food robot out there for their reinforcement. Another option is simply throwing a reinforcer on the line of movement that you want to encourage for the dog. So we call this rewarding on the line in agility. So I might drop a cookie or a toy right on the line that I wanted, that I cued the dog to take. And now we're back to that topography uh, question. And we're seeing that the dog is staying on the line that is cued when they acquire that reinforcer rather than coming off the line, pummeling the handler maybe, um, or pushing out of the line to get that reinforcer, you are reinforcing those behaviors when you reinforce like that. So if you want the dog to be reinforced for following the handling rather than staring at you, coming straight at you, you probably want to be reinforcing on the line. And then of course, we can always just reinforce from our hands. And that's our default most of the time when we're using food. But 
it doesn't help us a lot of the time. In fact, one of the only places that I think it helps us a lot, and I mean the dog coming to hand, so not staying where they are, not a room service marker, but leaving behavior and coming to hand. Where I use that the most is in healing. Why? Because I like the dog to be right there focused on that left side of my body. So feeding them from my left hand right to their mouth, right down my pants seam works like a charm. In agility, there are very few times that feeding from hand is best, aside from very early foundational skills. And it is our fallback. It is our default. It is our go-to. And gosh, isn't that problematic that it is not the best choice in so many situations? So you really want to be giving it um, some, some considerable thought. And now I'm going to go through just some household reinforcement strategies because this one's really important to me. It's important to me that we are being smart reinforcers of our dog's behavior throughout daily life. And that does not mean you have a clicker on your body all the time and you're, you're clicking behavior and throwing food. For me, it usually means pre-placed reinforcement for my dogs or just producing behavior by producing a reinforcement loop. So let me give you some examples because that could be a little bit confusing. I do something that I call zones. I will feed the dog in the zone that I want them to seek out simply by delivering food to that area when a certain trigger occurs. So I taught my three dogs that are typically in my office with me while I'm working not to erupt in barking if other dogs in the house erupt in barking because something is happening outside. By simply every time they did erupt in barking, the other dogs in the house, I would deliver food to their zones, their respective zones in my office. And now they hear the barking and they go to the zones. And so... Now I can use another reinforcement strategy because I've produced the behavior. I don't have to cue them to go to the zones by putting food there. They go there because they expect me to put food there. And now I can use reinforcement stashing, which is that I've got a stash of reinforcement that I can cue them to come to, or I can just go to and get food out of and deliver to them. So stashing I use more often when something is happening that I want the dog to come away from and come to the cookie jar instead. So like there's a delivery happening on the porch, I will yell cookies, all the dogs go to the nearest cookie jar and there is one in every room and they're well aware of that and then I will feed all the dogs from the cookie jar. So zones would be just putting reinforcement where you want the dog to go, essentially luring them to teach them where you want them to be when certain triggers occur. Stashing, which is the same as my ring sustainable type of reinforcement, just a little bit less sophisticated. And then I also use scatter feeding, scatters, as a reinforcement strategy anytime I want calm. So I will scatter after I release from crates. I will scatter after I release into the backyard. I will even have pre-placed scatters in the backyard for everybody to go out and find because when they're sniffing and snuffling and scenting for a scatter, they are not reacting. They are not flying off the handle. It is incompatible with all of those behaviors I don't like. Where scatters do not work are on my hardwood floors. So when you throw food and it, it's Mardi Gras beads and it's popping everywhere, that increases kind of the energy of the space. And if your goal is to bring that energy down, you want to be putting it in a high pile rug, a snuffle mat, or grass. So those are some basics of reinforcement strategies. I 
could give, you know, obviously a six-week course on this. There is so much to talk about. But I hope that this will serve as a reference for people to kind of learn about what they are and what I mean when I bring them up in other episodes. Cheers. And some Patreon questions for you. The first one, I gosh, I hope I'm saying your name right, Svigana, um, asks, can you talk about Rhea's X-Pen setup and why you chose to use an X-Pen instead of a crate? Could you share how much time Rhea spends there and when it is necessary for her to be there? Does staying in the X-Pen with all the lovely things help the puppy to learn to settle down and entertain themselves better? Great question. Rhea is in an X-Pen quite often. Basically, anytime I can't supervise her, she's in an X-Pen. I use it instead of a crate because I want the dog to default relax in the crate. And if we overuse a crate early in the process, they definitely don't learn that. And they can learn crate distress, and that's not something I want. Also, just on a welfare level, I don't like them to be in a crate for long hours. And she would have to be in a crate several hours a day because she is in the X-Pen several hours a day. And so I don't like that either. The X-Pen has all kinds of enrichment items for her. That's not really to teach her anything. That's to, that's to be kind to her, to keep her entertained, to make sure that she is not bored. Does it help her to learn to relax? I don't think so. Um, but it does set up the kind of the scene the antecedent for her to not chew things that she's not supposed to chew bother the other dogs things like that basically if she's in the x-pen she's not doing naughty things that i don't want her to do so she's in the x-pen generally while i work other than that she's she's not in there but i do work a full-time job so she's in there quite a bit i i hope that that's helpful if you're not familiar with happy creating we can link to it in the show notes, but it, it has a lot of the reasons why behind the X-Pen as well. Next one's from Gwendolyn, short and sweet. What are the most common mistakes handlers make while teaching the weave poles? Well, I think it's just all of the common mistakes that trainers make training anything, right? So the biggest one being asking for too much too soon. So asking for things the dog does, asking questions the dog doesn't know the answer to relying on error so sending the dog for an entry that they're going to miss so that you can withhold reinforcement and ask again so I'm not a, you know I, I think that that's not a good idea I think we should be setting them up for success as much as we possibly can if I set the dog up for an error it is very strategic and very rare that I do that I also want to know that the dog has access to the information in his mind to get the question correct after I withhold that reinforcement. It is not gonna be a general part of any of my training plans and it certainly isn't gonna to touch my weave pulse unless I've got some issue that I'm utilizing that intentionally for. Um, we also focus too much on speed before precision. So thinking that the dog needs to fly through the weave poles before we can kind of call them trained is not good. If they're walking, don't don't worry about it. Like don't bother them about going faster until they know how to do it. It is really really a hard thing to do. So pressuring them to go faster before they're capable of going faster and being right is not a smart thing. And then the biggest thing, the biggest error that we make is that we trial them before they're ready. So we put them in a competition setting before we know that they're going to get weave pulls right and then we attempt the weave pulls multiple times in a row in the ring and we build a stress response regarding the weave pulls. You shouldn't be asking questions that you don't think the dog's going to get right. 
that includes asking them to weave in a competition setting. If you don't think they're going to nail those weaves on the first, first try, you have no business and filling out that entry form. Just because you can try it three times, which you can in the United States, doesn't mean that you should. Great question. Next one's from Rendina. Question from your last installment in best agility practices. If agility sequences set up, say, 16 obstacles, and your dog is able to do all the obstacles but not ready to do all 16 without reinforcement, is it appropriate and helpful for the dog to break it down into smaller pieces? So run four, stop and reinforce, run the next four, stop and reinforce, etc. I think of this as a training session, not trial prep. Or do you think this muddies the water when it comes to ring sustainable reinforcement since it sort of looks like trial prep but you're stopping and giving reinforcement? It is easy for me to see how obstacle training is high rate of reinforcement, short training cookies are on me, etc. But when it comes to sequencing, this, disti this distinction is not clear. So Rendina, I don't think you know that you are, but you've, you're asking like 17 different questions. And so I'm going to try my best to answer all the questions that I see kind of embedded in this um, simple question. So first of all, if you want to get through a 16 obstacle sequence... Do not do the first four, then the next four, then the next four. Back chain it. Do the last four, then the last eight, etc. That's just a smarter way for you and a smarter way for your dog to learn. But that is that is a training scenario. That's preparing you for the ring prep scenario. If your dog can't do that yet, then you have no business doing a ring prep scenario. And so therefore, it's it kind of doesn't matter if it muddies the water or not, because you're not doing the other thing. You're not doing the ring prep scenario. To show the dog the ring prep scenario early, which is a good idea, start with very, very manageable chunks of the course like those last four, but don't try to back chain it in the same session. Hopefully that makes sense. And then in general, I think, you know, we think of sequencing itself as a skill for the dog when it's not. It's a skill for you. It's a skill for handling. This isn't about can the dog do 16 things in a row. It's about can you be clear for 16 obstacles, clear enough that the dog does not disengage, sniff, go around the thing, etc. When you're the one learning, not so much the dog, they really deserve a high rate of reinforcement. It shouldn't be a ring prep scenario. So I was exaggerating with 17, saying it was 17 questions, but I hope that that clears up your kind of core question as well as the questions that I think were involved. Thanks everybody for your questions. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.